What if in 2024, you got a little bit better every day? When you're learning a new language with Babbel, that's exactly what you're doing. And if Babbel can help you start speaking a new language in just three weeks, imagine what you could do in a full year. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses are helping me learn real-life conversation skills in Spanish. It's getting so easy to learn how to order food, ask for directions, or speak to merchants. Studies from Yale, Michigan State University, and others continue to prove Babbel is better. One study found that using Babbel for 15 hours is equivalent to a full semester at college. Babbel has over 16 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babbel's 14 award-winning language courses are backed by their 20-day money-back guarantee. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com SPP. That's right. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash SPP. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash SPP. Rules and restrictions may apply. Head over to your dresser and take a look in your underwear drawer and tell me what's in there. I guarantee you Mac Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now and whatever you have in your drawer. This week's episode is brought to you by the awesome folks over at Mac Weldon. Mack Weldon believes in smart design, premium fabrics, and simple shopping. The Mack Weldon shopping experience is amazing. It's super easy, and the products are fantastic. They want you to be comfortable, so if you don't like your first pair, you can keep it, and they will still refund you. No questions asked. Not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well too. Mack Weldon has an awesome offer just for Smart People Podcast listeners. Go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using promo code SMART. The podcast where we talk to smart people, but not necessarily done by smart people. That is an awesome question. This one goes down probably on one of my top five. Hey, I like nutrition. I like to eat food. This is the coolest thing ever. We're going to do this forever. I wish I paid more attention in that class. You know, I'm going to be honest. I don't understand that. As a man, I I don't get it. Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. I'm Chris Stemp, and thanks so much for joining us as we start off 2016. We're getting back to what we do best, and that's interviews, but I hope you enjoyed our best of series. And we got a great one for you today, something that's really good to start this new year. Something I think we all need to learn a little bit more about, and not only that, but really practice. And that is this idea of compassion. This week on the show, we have Dennis Turk. And Dennis is the founder and director of the Center for Compassion-Focused Therapy. He's also the president of the Compassionate Mind Foundation and author of six books, including The Compassionate Mind Guide to Overcoming Anxiety and The Act Practitioner's Guide to the Science of Compassion. Now, in case you're sitting here going, wow, this sounds a little frou-frou, which hopefully you're not, but 
Dr. Turk is a world-renowned psychotherapist. His company focuses on a number of different types of therapy known as cognitive behavioral therapy, but they just so happen to focus on those types of therapies that use things such as acceptance, compassion, mindfulness, etc. It's a great message to kick things off with this year. Be kind to yourself the same way we're taught to be kind to others. Now, there's something else I want to talk about that's brand new in 2016 and that we are extremely excited about. As you know, we've been podcasting for over five years. We've been lucky enough to have some of the most fascinating people in the world on the show, ranging from Tony Shea, the CEO of Zappos, to Alexis Ohanian, the founder of Reddit, to Brene Brown, and Simon Sinek, and Dan Pink, and Seth Godin, not to name drop or anything, but the list goes on and on. All of these folks have a ton of insight, a lot of experience, and can help us all in a number of different ways. On the other side of the equation, there is you, the listener. With this podcast, we have created one of the most unique communities around. Why do I say that? Well, there's a number of reasons. You are listening to this podcast because you're different. Look, as a podcast, we are not high budget. We are not pretentious. We're not argumentative. Essentially, we're not pop culture. We're not what you find out in the world. And we're never going to be massively huge because of that. But that's not what we're going for. We are a niche of curious, well-meaning, creative individuals. And I know this because I hear from you. I email with you. I talk with you. I also know this because we've been asking via surveys for years what motivates you and what you want to hear. And these are the kind of things we hear. I'm motivated to be the best at what I do. I'm motivated to learn and turn that knowledge into wealth. I'm motivated by creating, by helping others, supporting my family, and expanding my knowledge far beyond the average day-to-day. -day. I also hear what you want to learn. I want to learn how to be better, how to make money, how to be happy, how to find a dream job, how to be productive, how to be more fill-in-the-blank. So here's what we decided to do. We've been spending a lot of time thinking about this, years in fact. What else could we provide? And what we realized is... What we're doing with this podcast and what we're going to continue to do is expand your mind. But beyond that, what's next? What do you do with that knowledge? What do you need? How do you fill in that blank of what you want to be or what you want to do? So we are officially solidifying this community and adding more value by creating what some might call a mastermind. This mastermind will be dedicated to those who want to achieve and be more. They want to leverage the power of community as well as the power of knowledge to get to where they want to go. So here's some of the things that we will be including in this exclusive mastermind. Private live webinars with guests similar to those we have had on the show over the past five years. But there will be a few differences. First, these guests will be leveraging their knowledge to help you. For example, take our guest this week. It's an incredible interview. But imagine if he was putting on a presentation or a live webinar in which he gave tips, resources, worksheets, exercises on exactly how to utilize compassion-focused therapy to improve happiness. Also, it'll be live and you will be able to ask questions that pertain specifically to you. So essentially, 
The public free podcast will be about getting information. This is the how part, the nuts and bolts. You will also have the opportunity to reach out to us directly and request specific topics and engage with the expert we have on. So for example, if you're an entrepreneur, imagine having Seth Godin on a live webinar helping you with your struggle. Or if you have questions about relationships, we'll get Gary Chapman back on, author of The Five Love Languages, to give us a Q&A session. We already have our first webinar scheduled with previous guest Jonathan Levy, creator of the most popular course on Udemy, who is going to teach us how to speed read in just one hour. So in this group, we will be leveraging the brand and reach of Smart People Podcast to bring live video webinars exclusively to our mastermind. You will also receive two private podcast episodes per month that will not be available elsewhere. Additionally, we'll be setting up a private Facebook group where we can all help each other out, we can set up accountability, and we can utilize the resources of our community. Also, John and I will be doing monthly webinars where we teach you step-by-step how to start your own podcast and we answer any questions you have. This is something we get asked about a lot and we're happy to provide that information. There's other things we have in mind, but we also want to get your feedback. If you're interested in joining, give us your feedback directly by going to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash mastermind and taking a quick five-question survey. Go there and let us know what you think, what else you want, and if you're interested. Even if you're not sure, go to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash mastermind and tell us why or why not and what you would want us to provide you with. Listen, we will still be releasing podcasts for your enjoyment. There's still five years of free content and much more to come. But this is a big step in learning, growing, building, and creating, and we're excited to offer this to those of you who want to take this knowledge and turn it into that thing that you want to create, that thing you want to be, and those goals you want to achieve. All right, so thanks again for sticking with me. I hope you like what we have in store for you, and as a reward, I'm going to give you now our episode with Dr. Dennis Church. Dennis, first, I just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show today. I'm, I'm extremely excited to speak with you. Well, thanks so much for having me. I'm really looking forward to uh, our chat today. You know, as I was mentioning to you prior to hitting record, this is going to be a difficult episode for me. Many of the listeners know about my journey through anxiety and panic. I don't need to rehash it, but I'm going to try my best to keep it, you know, kind of uh, at arm's length and really understand it from your point of view. But there are going to be times I'm sure I will interject my story. So I apologize to the listeners. And also, I just wanted to let you know in advance. (laughs) Well, that's courage that you have. I mean, I think it's very brave of you to uh, speak from your heart and address something that's so personal for so many people in a way that that's relevant. So I, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to hear that you're open in that way. Yeah, it was definitely a, a long process, one that uh, took a while for, you know, for me to get to. And I'm still getting there, I guess, in terms of being, I don't know, public about it. But 
as I was saying, you know, it's one of those things, anxiety in general, in some form, affects almost everyone at some point in their life. Or I won't even say almost everyone, really, if if you're not in some fashion at some time pretty intensely affected by it, then I, I don't know what's going on. So you tend to find it's one of those things that people are more, I, I don't know, willing to accept or you know, on the flip side, they go, oh, it's just anxiety. Come on. We all, we all deal with that. You have a, a heart ra- your heart races and, you know, your palms get sweaty. Not a big deal. You know what I mean? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's something to realizing that firstly, anxiety relates so much to our ability to detect threats. That's really the root of our anxiety experience is this ancient evolved threat detection system. So if we didn't have any anxiety, uh, we would be in a hell of a lot of trouble. You know, you could just like walk through the street, get struck by a bus, or you would, you know, you just look the other way while you're, you know, uh, cutting up dinner or something. So anxiety is is not the enemy. It's actually something we really need. But unfortunately, for, for a large number of people, it can get, you know, sort of inflamed and out of hand to such a degree that it really makes our lives a bit smaller. So, you know, recognizing that it's a natural part of life is huge and also that you can do something about it when it becomes out of control or really difficult. Do you think that given modern society, the almost bubble we've created in in many places, not all around the globe, but do you believe that anxiety or the fear response itself is pretty much outdated or unnecessary at this point? Well, you know, that's a very interesting question. I've never really been asked just that before. I think what you're on to there is that there's a mismatch between the system we have and uh, the threats that we face most of the time. Because, you know, most of us have a new phone every few years in the developed world now or a new car every few, you know, 10,000, 20,000, 30,000, 50,000 miles. Um, and those those products are completely redesigned often to meet the challenges that we face now. But our anxious brain is actually hundreds of millions of years old. Evolution works incrementally and really slowly. So we have the same, basically the same threat detection hardware that our, you know, reptilian ancestors would have had uh, with a few <laughs> key modifications, you know, in terms of our ability to think abstractly and all that. But the, the deep, deep, what we call old brain threat detection structures are uh, still very much the same. So the environment that we're going to face now with images and data and, you know, lots of people around often as opposed to a small group somewhere on the savannas, uh, often we'll say uh, with our clients and students that if you think about it, your eyes, your brain in the course of a few days looking at things on the internet and walking through a major city and interacting with people, your brain is going to have uh, exposure to more images of competition, uh, sexual competition Mm. and sexual desire and threat than maybe generations of your ancestors would have had exposure to. So we really have a brain that was designed for a very different environment than the one we live in. You know, it's I've never thought about the fact that, okay, so, and, and you know, correct me or change it. This is just, sure. I'm going to go with what that yeah. spoke to me. 
So I've all, I, I think about this all the time just because it's fascinating. So our brain evolved uh, millions, hundreds of millions of years ago to really save our lives in these moments, these flash moments where the, the, the saber-toothed tiger jumps out of the bushes and you don't want to have to consciously think about it. So subconsciously or our old brain adrenaline courses through, you know, we, we run and that's our fear, anxiety, whatever, fear response. Well, that was still fairly rare, I, I would imagine. Not, you know, extremely, but still Ooh. fairly rare. But what you're saying now is there are actually more images, more stimulus that can create this fear or anxiety now than even in the times when this response was meant to save our life. Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Wow. Absolutely. That's, and so that's crazy because – so therefore, this system we have in place is being triggered more often even though the response now is fairly unnecessary. Yeah, I think you're really, you're really honing in on something. You know, one of the things that you know, we'll talk about and that we uh, find very important for our uh, clients and students to really sort of uh, get or <laughs> or learn is that you know one of the, what's distinctly human, distinctively human, is our ability to respond to imaginary things and mental representations of the world as if they were real. So if 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 we were uh, zebras and we're by the watering hole and all of a sudden a lion almost gets us, it just you know, some lion sees us and it just goes to bite us and maybe it gets distracted. It's a lion with ADHD and it just <laughs> runs away, you know. So we make it away. We make it, we make it away. Uh, if we're a zebra, within a few minutes, our threat detection system slows down and we don't really have a, a fear response the way a human does. We're alert to the threat. Our attention narrows. We focus on survival, we scurry away, and then we're back to baseline, we're back to normal. If the zebra had a human brain, it would be up all night, you know, worried about whether or not it's a good zebra or whether it's its fault that the lion almost got it, or what if I go back tomorrow and there's one lion or two lions, because the human brains are designed to sort of respond to imaginary things. Mm. And uh, this, is, this is very key. It's what, why we can communicate in language. It's why we can pass down information from one generation to another. It's why we can have this conversation and your listeners can walk away with a representation of our conversation in their mind. Maybe it can, you know, give them something to think about. That's uniquely human. So when you take that new brain human capacity for thought and self other relating and this whole inner realm that we live with you take that and then you couple that with a you know hundreds of million year old you know hair trigger 24 7 always on better safe than sorry threat detection system and we can walk around with these loops where we're you know worried whether we're going to get fired we're worried if we're a good person we're worried if our heart's going to stop and we have all the many different anxiety symptoms that we we can face in life so it's very tricky. We say wow. in compassion-focused therapy that humans have a very tricky brain, and it's not our fault, but it is our responsibility to learn how to live with it. Wow. I, I, I The listeners know this because it happens maybe only, I don't know, one every 10, 20 episodes, but I, I got goosebumps there because, as I mentioned, you know, I, I've looked into this research, read about it, spoken to people for about a decade, and I never looked at it this way, and that is 
the fear response, and, and I want to turn this into a question, but I'm learning as we go here. So oh, great. the fear response is this hair trigger, like you said, uh, just response system. It's, um, is autonomic the right word? Oh, yeah, yeah. Autonomic, part of the autonomic nervous system, certainly. Okay. So, so it's this thing that is just there. However, anxiety is the um, rumination of the thoughts that are triggered by the fear response. Is that fair? That's that's a that's a way to describe it. Certainly, uh, you know, uh, it's it's not just the response. And this is actually you're kind of right on the cusp of of a very important issue, not just in applied psychology, but even in you know neuroscience and the science of the mind more broadly. That yeah, there there is our threat response, which we share with other. Uh, animals, but then there is this sort of looping kind of fully human experience of emotion, which has dimensions of thought and and you know, worry and imagination and all that. Okay, so they're not directly linked. And again, I'll, I'm going to turn it over to you here in a second. But oh, no. so and so, what happens is the fear response is triggered more often now, or or very often, due mm. to the vast majority of stimuli. And then that can, in some individuals or many, due to the wiring of our brain, lead to this thought process, which I know myself often rationalized it as, um, well, I need to go through this loop. I need to, to mm. ask myself all these questions for my survival or my th the ability to thrive, you know, because you tend to, I, I know many people tend to take this stimulus in and analyze it going... I got this far because of my ability to analyze. Uh, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's a horrible question. People are going, your interviewing skills are terrible, but whatever. So what do you think of that? I'm really going through an interesting learning here. It's far from a horrible question. We could even see that your your helpful mind showed up right there and it criticized you like, oh, people think this is bad. That's a phenomenal <laughs> thing. You know, like that's, that's, that's an amazing thing. This, this one living part of the universe, this one animal on this little rock, you know, uh, developed a sense of itself when you did that. And then it developed a sense of others <laughs> and it imagined a social threat like the others will shun me, wow. you know, and that's that's kind of the key of what we're of what we're talking about. Uh, you, what you one of the things that you really pointed out, which is so helpful for people to understand, is that. It's really, truly not our fault that we ruminate or we worry or we project into the future because our brain thinks it needs to do that. The brain and the mind hate unemployment. They're, they're, they're always helpful. They're like a helpful neighbor that just won't stop knocking on the door, you know, and, uh, you know, about every little, little thing and, and causing trouble. So uh, humans, in addition to this thing that we have where we are able to represent the world and then respond as if our imaginings are real. We also are really clever when it comes to uh, trying to avoid problems, right? So like in the real world, avoiding danger generally is good. If there are poison berries, don't eat the berries. Or if you know you think there's a bear sleeping in that cave, probably not a good idea to make camp in the cave. Or if there's rocks falling, get away from them. The problem is our mental events, when we, the research has shown this again and again and again, that when we have excessive attempts to avoid or over control mental events, those mental events actually strengthen sort of this famous 
uh, paradigm where they, uh, experimenters will ask their participants to try to not think of a white bear for a few minutes. And, you know, uh, those people who are trying to not think of a white bear think of that bear a hell mm. of a lot. And those people who just are said, hey, you might think about a white bear in the next couple of minutes, but maybe you'll think about anything. Just think whatever you want. They, uh, without trying to suppress those thoughts of the white bear, they don't think about it that much. They think about their taxes or what's on Netflix. They don't, you know, uh, get stuck. So as they say, uh, what we resist persists. And all of the anxiety disorders are actually, they're, they're an overgrown solution rather than just a problem. So our attempts at checking and keeping safe, we call them safety behaviors. We uh, get stuck in loops where we're trying to avoid feeling something and then we feel it more and more and more, which is sort of a panic attack is the greatest example of that. Exactly. Yeah, you, so you know exactly what we're talking about. This is really important observations that you've, that you've made. Well, for those that maybe aren't, I, I mean, a lot of people deal with anxiety, but I, I don't think a, a ton deal with it to extremes. Let's talk about, um, let me turn it over to you for kind of what's going on and the, the actual brain science. Tell us a little bit about this magnificent um, yet flawed brain we have. I love your, you called it the anxious brain. And mm. that really triggered something for me because, as you mentioned, it is perhaps one of the, or is one of the most important, intense things that it does, which is, you know, the fear and then the response to, to what we observe. So tell us what's going on underneath the surface, how it evolved, and what the actual mechanisms are that in place. Well, we can begin by noticing that right now um, the number of people, the percentage of people in the general population of the United States who have, a di who have had a diagnosed anxiety disorder, that's about 29% or something like that. So wow. almost a third. And, and that's right, exactly. Wow. Those are the people who went to a medical professional and had a diagnosis that we all know there's many many other people who deal with this with their family or at uh, with a, with a, their religious uh, you know organization or just going to a bar you know so we think about all of the uh, all of the millions of people who have anxiety problems other research has suggested that uh, you know survey research uh, comparing, let's say, the 1950s to the er earlier part of the 2000s, um, the average level of anxiety reported in some studies in high school students now is equivalent to psychiatric inpatients in the 1950s. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, this is, this is in many ways sometimes referred to as the age of anxiety. Now, I'm sure if you were like a serf in 1437, it was probably a lot to be anxious about mm -hmm. then. Right, right. But right now we have this epidemic levels of anxiety. And what, what that has to do with, I think, also relates to our capacity to still and calm our anxiety, which is a very important point. Now, the, the form, there's several forms of cognitive behavior therapy that I work with and, and that I write about. And, and one of the forms of uh, evidence-based, sort of research-based therapy, the, mo the, the, the sort of predominant one that I work with is called compassion-focused therapy. That was developed by Dr. Paul Gilbert in uh, the UK a long time ago. Well, a long time ago. I mean, 20-odd 20, 20 years ago. And it's being developed all over the world now. The reason I mention that form of therapy right now is because 
what we find is that our capacity to experience warmth, care, affiliative emotions, and social safeness is very, very important for how we deal with anxiety. And it's, I think it's one of the reasons uh, why we have so much anxiety now. So if it's okay, I don't mean to go on for too long here, but I, w- I could just sort of expand those relationships to answer your really comprehensive question. But if there's anything you wanted to add now, I want to just make space for it because I don't want to keep ripping. No, no, no. Th- that's great. And I, because I did want to, you know, as you mentioned, talk about the compassion focused therapy, which is your core thing. And, and I'm interested because I don't know a ton about it. So please go on. The only thing I wanted to add to that was kind of. W- as we discuss, and I think you're getting there, it, it helps to know what's going on at the, I don't want to say cellular, but granular level. Oh, yeah. And so I'd love to hear that from your perspective as well. Uh, I love these questions today. <laughs> Thank <laughs> <Good>. you <laughs> so much because this is this is sort of my life's work. I'm really, you know, uh, excited to talk about it. Absolutely. And it's something that matters to you too. And, and this question you're asking really is sort of at the heart of it. So what we say in compassion-focused therapy in the beginning of the work is that, that our work with anxiety and cultivating compassion begins with a reality check. When we realize that we come into the world, we don't come, and we come out of the world, rather. I always say that in reverse. <laughs> we come out of the world and not into it. We're, we're, we're a, an evolved species in the flow of life, and we emerge from the very fabric of Reality, just like the plants that are outside my window or the brook that's running there without sounding too much like, you know, Jefferson Airplane or something. <laughs> like, the truth is that we do uh, emerge as an evolved species in the flow of life. And many of our behaviors and emotions and experiences that cause us trouble are very, very old evolved systems. And the fact that we have this tricky brain is truly not our fault. So we know that we evolved with this old brain what you know the sort of fight flight or freeze system very often activating the uh, amygdala which are these two almond sized structures in the brain that are you know ready to light up and send a cascade of uh, information through our body creating uh, adrenaline uh, cortisol and the activation of this threat response. The threat response often referred to as a fight, flight, or freeze response. Three major ways that animals will respond to a threat. They're ready to aggress, to counterattack, or they are ready to slow uh, down and totally freeze and just maybe they'll blend in and hide or uh, flee to get out of dodge quickly. Um, And this system, importantly, organizes the mind, and this is one of the things we can all think about together, that these emotions and these evolved motivations organize our minds and they influence how we act. So threats, uh, they will narrow our available behaviors and they'll narrow our range of attention. So we're having a lovely chat right now, and if all of a sudden there was a big fire alarm that went off in one of our, uh, you know, sort of places, we would be really focused on not being stuck in a fire rather than the chat, hmm. because that's a priority. And our brains are organized so that if there's a threat, we pay just attention to the threat. And as we mentioned, uh, that doesn't have to be a real threat. That can be an imaginary threat. Now, human beings have followed a very interesting uh, evolutionary track, you know, building on our, our mammal uh, ancestors, in that we, do, we have a very low birth rate, and infant survival is extremely important. Now, if we were a turtle, we would lay like 10,000 eggs and maybe 
100 might survive. And by the time they either survived or perished, we'd already be back in the ocean doing turtle stuff and hanging around. <laughs> you know, like, uh, but humans evolved very differently since our chief evolutionary advantage is communication and language and thought. We've evolved with this huge prefrontal cortex with a brain that's 1,500 cc's as opposed to our chimpanzee cousins who have a 450 cc brain. And the truth is that our brain is too big to be fully developed when we're born. If we watched a video of a horse being born, we'd see the horse you know, pop out and it would quickly be running around doing horse stuff. But humans aren't like that. We need care. We need to be looked after. And we need that uh, sort of protection and support for a long time into an extended period of adolescence. This also resulted in humans being one of the only species that allows uh, co-parenting and this whole idea of it takes a village really does go back to even early hominids where, you know, different members of a tribe or a family group would take part in the parenting. That's not usually the case. So we have this slow developmental evolution during which time we know that the presence or absence of warmth and loving care will drastically affect our brain development, our immune system, all of these kind of things. So we've evolved with two ways of dealing with threats. One is our emotions of fear and anger that fight, flight, or freeze. And we've also evolved to have our minds be stabilized, calmed, and soothed by knowing that we're socially safe and that we're in a warm, supportive, or loving uh, experience. Mm. So one of the problems we have with anxiety is that sometimes we've, we've had environments, also environments which we didn't choose, which may have been excessively threatening or alienating or cold, environments where there's been trauma or abuse or neglect, so that our capacity to still our fear and calm our mind with compassionate courage and the experience of being emboldened by the presence of love and care, that isn't as developed. And sometimes if we've had caregivers who've been abusive, unfortunately, we even learn that love and warmth and even self-compassion can be threatening. When that occurs, wow, now it's a really tricky situation because we have a hair trigger threat detection system so we're really ready to step on the gas and we either can't put our foot on the brake or when we do we rev up even further mm. so dealing with anxiety is a blend of letting go of avoidance based strategies safety behaviors and things that make matters worse learning to turn to face the things that we fear so that we can learn to overcome the dominance of that fear and also training a new psychic muscle of courage and bravery and mindful awareness so that we can bring a sensitivity to the presence of suffering in ourselves and others and a commitment and a courage that's necessary to face our fear to the, the whole equation. Wow. That was, that was fantastic. And I want to, because uh, I was trying to write them down just to discuss and perhaps go a little deeper in or just understand. What are the three things you said? Letting go of avoidance-based um, something. 
Well, you know, letting go of avoidance-based strategies and what we yes. call safety behaviors. And safety behaviors are any of the little chronic things we do with anxiety problems so that we can get rid of the anxiety that actually make the anxiety worse. So if it's OCD, it might be washing your hands. Mm. Or if it's PTSD, it's not, not letting yourself think about the trauma and then you think about it more. If it's a panic attack, it's paying attention to every little uh, potential physical uh, arousal, right? Yeah, yeah, that's interesting. Wow. So, okay, so let's go through this. So there's letting go of avoidance-based strategies. What were the, I think there were two other ones. Then fa- facing fear. The number one uh, evidence-based technique in all of the behavioral therapies, the evidence-based therapies for overcoming anxiety, something called exposure and response mm. prevention, where you gradually learn to face your fears. Um, and there's interesting changes in the research as to why facing your fears and moving towards things that you fear is so helpful. We used to think that gradually, uh, if you faced something you were afraid of, you'd learn that it wasn't a danger, you know, Mm -hmm. and then the fear would just go away. But it turns out it's not so simple. It's not just like if I have a fear of uh, dogs and then I go to a behavior therapist and each week I I get a little bit closer to a dog and then I sit right next to the dog and I learn that the dog isn't a threat. It's it's not as simple as we used to think where there's just uh, no more fear. We actually learn through a process called inhibitory learning new behaviors in the presence of that feared stimulus or like for example this dog so when we a overcome the avoidance uh behaviors safety behaviors we learn to turn towards our fear rather than sort of run away from it Mm -hmm. just like if you're in a boat in a storm and there's a wave if you try to outrun the wave the, the wave can overtake your boat and you're done for rather than turning your boat and sailing into the wave so you can go over the crest mm. and survive. So we learn to turn towards our, our fear, be willing to face it rather than r- running from it. Then we actually face the fear through exposure and response prevention. Now what we add in compassion-focused therapy is deliberately cultivating our evolved capacity for compassion and social safeness, which is intimately connected to a neural biological system which is referred to sometimes as the soothing system or the contentment system it involves the neurotransmitters and hormones and involved in oxytocin and vasopressin and it involves a part of our uh, body called the polyvagal complex which is uh, sort of this one of the nerves that extends down from the brain and radiates through the digestive system through the respiratory system is that the vagus nerve Yes, the vagus nerve, the okay. polyvagal complex, which is involved in this rest and digest and tend and befriend system where the, the slowing down part of the nervous system, the sympathetic, uh, parasympathetic rather, nervous system, which allows us to feel centered and calm and prepared and at ease, we deliberately stimulate that in compassion-focused therapy so that when we engage in exposure and we face our fears, we're not just trying to feel less scared. We're trying to actively feel a greater sense of accomplishment, mastery, courage, and security. And all of that relates to being kind to ourselves and uh, cultivating self-compassion. And is, is that the third? Because I remember there were three. There's letting yeah. go of avoid. That's the third thing you were talking about? Yeah, and we're, we're composing this together yeah. today, yeah. these three. I'm going to be using this for years now, these three. Like, <laughs> you, know, how, you know, turning towards what we fear, overcoming the anxiety. And actually, we could even put them in a slightly different order, like 
maybe we would even begin with compassion. So rather mm. than the third one now becomes the first as we're developing this plan together. Mm. So we first we learn to pause, rest in the moment with mindful awareness. We learn to have kindness and courage. We cultivate that capacity and willingness so that our so that our compassion gives us a place to stand and we realize that there's something worth suffering for. We're going to turn towards now. We've like paused. We're overcoming, letting go of our safety behaviors. So we're in a place of compassion. And from this place of compassion, we learn to let go of our avoidance behaviors. We let go of our security blanket. We kind of let go of those safety behaviors. And then we face our fears. We engage in exposure and actively, deliberately uh, see our anxiety as a sparring partner or a wrestling partner. So we're going to be present with our anxious mind until it doesn't command our life anymore. So we're not tyrannized by our anxiety anymore. We're actually able to live with our anxiety but be in control of the direction that we walk in. That's really incredible, and I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you why. So, um, for a number of reasons, but I, I interviewed to give a TED talk a while ago, and I um, I dubbed it the fear not response, and it essentially in, in not in that exact order, but it kind of walked through how I dealt with panic and how I kind of came out the other side, and a lot of it followed what you were just talking about. So if you want, I'll send, it's a private video. Oh, I'll yeah. send it to you. It's oh, real short. Um, it's kind of, you know, it's, it's not the best quality cause it was an audition, but let me know what you think about that. Oh, I'd love to see. And this is exactly what we love to see when we're working with someone is we become our own therapist. We unlock our own inner wisdom and that's what you've done. You've found your own inner wisdom and you've kind of learned these patterns through your own inner work. I'd love to see it. Actually. Absolutely. I'll, I'll send it to you. And if anybody listening is like, yeah, why not? Email me at Chris at smartpeoplepodcast.com and I'll send it to you. And enough, if enough people find it valuable, maybe I'll put it out there. It's kind of embarrassing, but cause I obviously did not get selected to, to give the speech, but I think that was due to my new and my poor, poorer skills. Then now I've kind of refined them a little bit, but I, I just love that. And, and I, I think you're spot on. I mean, my big thing the first part, the compassion part, the way I talk about it and dealt with it was I had to go out into nature. So I went hiking. I I actually took some time off. I played golf. And for me, what it did, it, there was this fire inside almost of anxiety. And it, it told my body, like, it's okay to, to let that down. And I mean, if you have years or decades or whatever of that building up, I think you have to purposely... Um, let it die down in a safe environment, if that makes sense. Oh, it makes huge amount of sense. It makes a huge amount of sense. So you're getting to know yourself. Yeah. I think it's a great example. This week's episode is brought to you by Igloo. Head over to igloosoftware.com slash smart people to try it for free. We all struggle with productivity. We're constantly under pressure to accomplish more and to do it faster. There is no one definitive way to accomplish that, so we devise our own methods to make things work. Igloo can help you doing things your way only better. Listen, collaboration shouldn't be painful. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smart people. And a digital opportunity trust said this about Igloo. 
Since Igloo was so easy to use and customize, not only were we able to set up quickly, but we were also able to get everyone trained and up to speed in no time. Be like Ann, try out Igloo today. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com slash smart people. And now back to the show. So one question that popped up, this Vegas nerve is, is has always been interesting to me, and I don't fully understand it, but I know that um, like the first time I got blood taken, I passed out, and they said, oh, you have this response called vagovasal, and it's something where your uh, blood vessels or whatever uh, open up and all the blood rushes down and you passed out, whatever. And so this nerve is, I think you mentioned, is, is it our largest nerve in our body? Well, the vagus nerve, what you just described, uh, that uh, vasovagal syncope, that'll happen with blood and injury phobia. And it's in an interesting way, it's the opposite of a panic attack. Whereas a panic attack puts you into this huge arousal, uh-huh. like a vasovagal syncope, basically you're, you see blood and your very, very helpful brain thinks, well, we don't want to bleed out, so let's just reduce your uh, blood pressure, and then you pass out. Right. You know, and, and this, the vagus nerve, sometimes referred to as the master nerve, it's the largest cranial nerve. It extends throughout the body, and it's responsible for regulating these systems and allowing us uh, to put our guard down and to have an experience of safeness. I'm in a safe context. And from within that safe context, you can sometimes explore. You know, if you imagine like a baby uh, animal, there's a video that I watch sometimes in, in workshops with this baby monkey and the mother monkey. And you could see the little baby monkey goes to explore, kind of looks like the monkey on your uh, Smart People podcast logo. You know, he's like kind of like exploring around these branches and the mom just has this gentle like touch on his tail and then he kind of stumbles or she kind of stumbles and Mm. you know and then goes back to the mother and like is shaking and the mother holds the little monkey until it feels stable and calm and once and that's that activation of the vagus nerve once that tendon befriend system is kicked in all of a sudden the monkey will begin to explore again and it'll Ah. go scamper around until it gets sufficiently scared and it comes back to home base and it stabilizes. So that's sort of the, the, the vagus nerve, the polyvagal complex in action. And uh, Stephen Porges writes about this, and uh, many people in the compassion psychology community are, are increasingly aware of this importance of cultivating that ability, that, which you dubbed the fear not response, <laughs> which I really, I really dig that. <laughs> that's interesting. Has there been any science behind the vagus nerve uh, malfunctioning being the cause behind anxiety disorders just because now I feel like my vagus nerve is just a piece of junk <laughs> given that I go both ends of the spectrum kind of intensely well there are like any paradigm in psychology and uh, Chris there there is a tendency when something is um, understood better that we hang a lot on on it right right. like so there are some and this is actually really cool there's some colleagues of ours in and by ours i I don't mean the mafia i mean like like a friend of ours (laughs) like the people in the the colleagues of people in the compassion focused therapy community colleagues of mine at the greater good science center in berkeley uh who uh 
have done some training with small kids and pinwheels to get them to exhale longer because that exhalation will relatively engage the polyvagal complex and the vagus nerve. So they describe it as uh, helping people to cultivate good vagal tone. Wow. So uh, I think one thing we know in science is that whatever we're talking about at any given point, you know, 75% of it's probably wrong. Yes. Because science is progressive, right? And we want it to be that way. It's not like we want... I wish I... I long for 19th century science. That would be so much better. You know, so (laughs) everything we're talking about now is like... Uh, like the Plato's, uh, I, you know, the cave, like we're seeing just the beginnings of it and, and hopefully we accelerate our understanding. But yes, there's all sorts of uh, ways that people are looking at how can we help people to develop what they call good vagal tone. Wow. I'm going to have to look into that. That sounds yeah, really interesting. good stuff. So, all right. So thank you so much for, for this uh, this part, and I want to learn more about you know now your your true life's work. From what I can tell, you you are the founder and director of the Center for Compassion Focused Therapy (CFT). Um, obviously, by the name Compassion Focused, we can have a general idea, but I, I feel like it would be a disservice if we leave it at that. So let's really dig in. Tell us what that means. Well, first let's let's start there. What does that mean? What is Compassion Focused Therapy? So compassion-focused therapy uh, is an approach to psychotherapy, an approach to helping people to alleviate their suffering, which is focused on compassion. So uh, a little bit of, actually, this might be the the super micro brief uh, bio of how I became involved in these kind of things. When I was uh, very young, like 10 years old, I had an uncle who had been a veteran in World War II, and he had learned to deal with his own anxiety about war-related trauma, combat trauma, by going to a Zen center in the 60s or something, 70s. And um, he had began teaching me Zen meditation when I was a kid, when I was about 10. It's very timely right now because the new Star Wars film has come out. and, And it was right after seeing Star Wars, and I was like fascinated by Jedi Knights like any 10 year old in 1978 or whatever. So this uncle said, Oh, Hey, you know, the Jedi, what they're doing is they're training their mind. And you know, if you're anxious at school, I can help you to train your mind. So, you know, you just sit here and you breathe and just, you know, that became a big part of my life throughout, you know, high school, et cetera. And then when I was in my twenties, I decided after doing a fair bit of Buddhist study and being really dedicated to understanding the mind in that paradigm, why not learn a Western paradigm in the mind? and begin to think about how to apply these methods to psychotherapy. Now, apparently there were a lot of people all over the world who were doing that, uh, which is a wonderful thing. It's sort of one of those sort of zeitgeist moments in our, in our field in psychotherapy where an openness to different ways of working all over the world in terms of meditation, etc., cetera, uh, kind of entered the mainstream. But this is way before that in the 90s. And the dominant paradigm then, and now actually, uh, thankfully, Uh, is a group of therapies which together could be referred to, they are referred to as cognitive behavioral therapy. It sounds like just one therapy when you hear cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's actually a whole bunch of acronyms. And we have a joke. There's like CBT, DBT, MBCT, KGB, CIA, FBI. (laughs) I was like, KGB? (laughs) KGB, what's that? Well, what happened is it's all these little acronyms that these different research-based therapists developed. And, And the reason... 
that that's important is cognitive behavior therapy is different from previous uh, sort of more Freudian kind of therapies in one really, really big way is that we test the concepts, we link all of the concepts as much as we can to learning theory and earlier experimental science and we have a lot of outcome research to see what will work and what will not work. So this type of therapy, cognitive behavior therapy, has evolved over you know, since the 1960s. And there is one point early cognitive behavior therapy was sort of very basic, just exposure and response prevention for anxiety and helping people be more active if they are depressed. And then in the 70s and 80s, a lot of work began do, teaching people how to challenge their thoughts, if their thoughts are irrational, so that they think more rationally and that will help. And then in the last 20 years, there's been a huge movement within cognitive and behavior therapies to not just challenge our thoughts or just move towards our fears, but to train our minds in healthy new ways of approaching life. And there's some dominant therapies, one being ACT, Acceptance and Commitment Therapy, which is a form of therapy that really emphasizes, uh, emphasizes mindfulness, training the mind in mindfulness, and having an acceptance and a willingness to face fear. Uh, and it's a very interesting form of therapy. And over the years, moving from being a Buddhist kid in New Jersey to a Buddhist practitioner to then a behavior therapy practitioner to then working more with challenging cognitions and then finally finding a place where the field was really open to meditation training training and willingness and then ultimately meeting my mentor about 10 years ago my one mentor uh paul gilbert uh prior to that i'd worked for many years at a place called the american institute for cognitive therapy which is sort of like one of the main centers in the world with a, a wonderful man and leader in cognitive therapy named bob Leahy. and i began working with paul out of the uk in this training the mind specifically in compassion the definition we have for compassion which is thousands of years old is a sensitivity to the presence of suffering in yourself and others coupled with a motivation and a commitment to do something about that suffering. Mm. And this is not just a concept. It's an evolved human imperative. It's a motivation that will organize the mind. So compassion-focused therapy is developed from all of the preceding cognitive and behavior therapies, from elements of Jungian therapy, from elements of evolutionary psychology, and, and also imagery techniques and role-playing techniques that are brought in from Tibetan Buddhism and also from method acting of all things. So we're developing this new psychic muscle, which is a capacity for great compassion, which leads to courage and an ability to face new challenges. So there really has been an evolution in the field that's extraordinary in the last 20 years. We're, we have so many more tools and so much... Uh, greater capacity for an integrative approach to really help people overcome anxiety, depression, and other problems. And compassion-focused therapy, to me, is the cutting edge of this whole evolution of behavior therapies. And so, so compassion-focused therapy, you know, what, what jumps out to me, and I want to know if this is a part of CFT, is I read something that said, you know, monitor your self-talk monitor your thoughts, and then realize that you would never say that to somebody else. And, and so 
say, for example, you uh, screw something up and then you ruminate on it and you go, that was so dumb. Can't believe I did that. That per- that person probably thinks I'm an idiot. Da, 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 da. And then you go, all right, now let's be the other person in this scenario and see if you would ever say that to someone. Does that make sense? Oh, of course. Yeah. Is that that's part a- of it at all? It is. And that's a, that's such a great example, Chris, of the difference between compassion-focused therapy and earlier forms of CBT. So hanging in there with that idea for just a little bit longer, right? Like in old school cognitive therapy, which I did for a long time and is a very effective way of dealing with all of these problems, we might use that technique. And in cognitive therapy, that's called a double standard technique. The idea is I've had an irrational thought. Here's the irrational thought like, I'm a loser and I screw everything up. Hmm, okay, let me think logically about that. Would I say that to someone else? Let me apply that. Log- no, I, I wouldn't. If I were saying it to my best friend, I wouldn't say, hey, you know, John, you're a loser and, you know, you screw everything up. I might say, John, you know, you, you get a lot of things right. You made a mistake right now. It's going to be okay, you know. <coughs> Pardon. So in compassion-focused therapy, we don't just do that with logic. We engage in some slowing down and tapping the inner wisdom of our compassion itself and leading with our emotions rather than our logic. So we pause and think there's so much in that gesture of what would I say to my best friend, which is so important. Firstly, there's pausing and noticing that we're having a negative automatic thought and not being identified with it. We're not looking out from the thought like it's absolute reality. We're looking at it as a thought, hey, my mind just told me that I'm a loser and uh, that I screw everything up. Then engaging in a perspective taking or an empathy task, let me imagine I'm seeing the world from another set of eyes. I'm imagining I'm seeing that through another set of eyes. Through Maybe I'm seeing it through the eyes of my best friend. And what would it be like to be this friend who's listening to his best friend say, that he's a loser and that he hates his life and then he fails at everything. And what, what does that feel like in my body? Like, can I access the motivation to care? So I'm imagining, like, and I'll flip it around again. I'm imagining John, my best friend, and he's sitting there and he has tears in his eyes and he's so frustrated and he's so anxious because he had to, to give a presentation and he felt scared and it didn't work out for him. And now he feels like he's a loser. He's condemning himself. If I were speaking from a place of compassion and speaking from my heart, what would I say playing that role with all of the wisdom and strength and commitment that we have when we feel compassion for another person? So it's more than just the rationality. It's Mm. speaking, learning to have our whole mind be organized by our compassion itself. I got to tell you, something in my body just lit up and, and in, a, in a weird way, when you mentioned the lead with emotion, emotion versus lead with logic, and I've always uh, tried to lead with logic in everything. I mean, and it's actually a point of contention with my wife because she leads with emotion, and I'm not going to say that that is due to uh you know man or male versus female but i I find that that tends to be the case but you know we'll get in an argument or a discussion and i'll say wait let's break everything down first you said this and this is what i said and Mm. that and she'll go okay why do you point out every statement like let's look at what it stands for or why it's happening 
And that's a really difficult thing for me. Do you find mm-hmm. that people who put a lot of uh, emphasis and stress and really uh, meaning in logic tend to, I don't know, look at this differently, struggle in different ways? Any thoughts there? Well, I think we can imagine uh, the work we're describing from CFT and just in being human, you know, is finding a sort of a balance of all of the different aspects of ourselves. And what we say sometimes in CFT is practicing being the person we wish to be. If I want to play the violin better, I practice the violin. If I want to be a better golfer, I practice golf. What if I could practice being the person I wish to be? So it's not just being led by emotion like any emotion that shows up. So I, I have an angry angry self. I have an anger system, a fight, fight, or freeze fight system that's in my body. And if I'm in the supermarket and uh, a woman, maybe like 20 years older than me, just kind of cuts me off with her cart and sort of gives me a dirty look, my angry self will be like, you know, 500 million year old, like Hulk smash, you know, and I'm not going <laughs> to yell. Do, I do know. <laughs> right. I'm not going to sort of like, you know, start screaming or like throw the oatmeal on the floor, you know, like, so it's not just any emotion ruling us, but it's finding the leading with the emotion in the situation and being open to the whole range of human emotions and having compassion for even the parts of ourselves that we don't like or the, or the others that we don't like. It's, I mean, it's easy to have compassion for people we love. I have a niece and she's like the sun in my sky and I love her so much. And it's very easy for me to forgive her or have compassion for her when she's struggling or if she does the wrong thing. But that's easy. It's having compassion for the person whom we might not like in the outside world and for the parts of ourselves that we might be cross with. So the, the part of me that is my angry self, that part needs compassion. Mm-hmm. My anxious self needs compassion. So, you know, what you were describing, Chris, you know, your wife, and this, this isn't just a question of uh, cliches or, or, or sexism or anything like that. Like men tend to, more often than not, and of course, it's not always the case, because individual differences outweigh group differences here. But men, you know, historically are socialized to think in that problem-solving mode, which in a way does actually relate to an emotion of, of threat detection, really. But it's like, let's think about the problem. Let's solve the problem. Let's stay with words. Let's be avoidant of the softer, warmer emotions because well, maybe we're afraid of them or something like mm-hmm. so. We, we'll be analytic. Mm-hmm. And, you know, women can be like that, too. But more often than not, you know, in our culture, that's where men have been at. And women have been more socialized to be open to their inner lives and to speak from the heart mm. and to try to tend to the connectedness. It's actually very healthy. So uh, this sort of, in some ways, greater emotional intelligence that women can have uh, sort of meets the instrumental intelligence, which is where men tend to lead in these kind of interpersonal things. And if we return to this idea of balance, creating a context to feel compassion for yourself and your partner, creating a space of warmth and loving kindness between the two of you, even when there's a dispute, even when there's uh, pain and a problem. And this is, this is the cutting edge of where the science is leading us. And it's also at the heart of the wisdom traditions that have 
achieved prominence all over the world. You can find this, you know, Confucius talking about courage coming from love. And, and we think about, you know, sort of biblical uh, Christian idea of turning the other cheek. Well, that's not, if we take that as a, as a metaphor, what we're describing is not being ruled by anger and fear, but allowing ourselves to have those emotions to and to return again and again to warmth and care. Uh, and that's in all of our myths. And it's also because it's in our biology. It's how we're wired. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting, as you were kind of talking about uh, having compassion, and specifically the grocery store, I thought of, have you seen the video by, well, it's now turned into a video, but it's the speech by David Foster Wallace uh, about this is water. Y- yes, I have seen it, but... It isn't leaping to the front of my awareness at the moment. Yeah, it's fine. And and I just say that because I encourage anyone to, to YouTube it. Um, I think if you just search, this is water. But he essentially talks about, you know, the way we tend to go out into the world is to look at it from our point of view. So you go to the grocery store and you get stuck in line behind somebody who's got all these items. Their kids are screaming. They look perhaps differently than you, you know, obese or whatever, and you you just get angry and you look down on them. And then he said, the flip side is you can choose in that moment to think about uh, this person as a person and their reality and what could be going on. So he says, perhaps she's been up all night taking care of her sickly mm. father, you know, and and this person, perhaps they're dealing with this struggle And, you know, maybe you get cut off by a big SUV, but that person has to drive an SUV because of their fear of car accidents. And he goes on and on. And it kind of stuck with me. I find myself and and this is where I almost want to, you know, I know we're running out of time here, but with with this idea of compassion. So I've practiced this in the grocery store, which is a point of contention for me, where Mm. I I do get angry at people's inability to to function kind of quickly and efficiently. And then I'll stop and I'll remember that video and I'll go, look, you don't know what's going on with this person. This is a person. Imagine if it was your mother or your aunt or your father. Mm. Um, But compassion is difficult and it is not our um, first or I, I think our primary response why is that, and how would you say for those uh, of course you have a you have a book on this and and we'll discuss that at the end um, but for those listening, what takeaway can they have to start incorporating compassion in their life well there's so much in what you're just describing, and it really reminds me uh, of the importance of being able to train the mind. compassion and stabilize the mind. And it also reminds me, Chris, that we're not talking about ideological choices or, you know, concepts. We're talking about what it means to be human and that we do have our default programming, which is to, you know, move from space to space and time to time in our minds and think about contingencies and analyze and be prepared for threats. And that's how we stay alive. That's if you look at the birds feeding on your lawn and they hear the slightest noise and they scurry. Now, maybe one in a thousand times it's a cat or a predator, but they're better safe than sorry. So one of the reasons our anxiety and our anger is so prominent and so to the fore is because that's how we've evolved and that's the primacy of threat detection. 
And another thing, though, is that, again, our environmental contingencies sometimes make it difficult for us to feel warmth and social connectedness. You know, maybe we associate happiness, even happiness. You know, there's a great growing literature on the fear of happiness. Maybe we have learned to not let our guard down. It's not okay to feel socially safe. It's not okay to slow down and to take perspective. When we're under conditions of threat, and this is also borne out by the research, we don't have empathy as much. When we're, you know, it would make sense, you know, if we're uh, in the middle of a a war or a huge personal fight or uh, fleeing a natural disaster, we're not imagining what it would be like to see the world through the eyes of another. We are, if it's the holidays or we're on a, on a date or you're parenting and we're in a socially safe context, then we extend our mind into the minds of others and imagine what it would be like to be them. It's a very important, very human skill. So what David Foster Wallace and what you, Chris, are discussing is cultivating this capacity to meet our anger, our threats, uh, with a stabilizing, calming perspective, which involves extending our understanding to see the world through the eyes of others. And this has the effect of emboldening us, giving us courage, and tapping our own uh, inner wisdom. And that's just how we are as people. But it doesn't come naturally uh, in all contexts. And sometimes we have a fear of compassion. Some You can think about compassion-focused therapy as working to gradually... We talked about exposure earlier. Well, oddly enough, sometimes what we need in life is gradual exposure to positive emotions, gradual exposure to feeling love, to feeling care, to feeling warmth, because actually those emotions can be very scary for a lot of us. Mm. I've heard that, and, I, you know... I don't quite understand it. I, I I don't think it's scary for me. Perhaps it is, perhaps it isn't, but it's one it that's a thought that's always you know, I'm always trying to strengthen that emotional intelligence and that one's always been interesting for me. The inability to feel or, or want to feel certain things. Well, I'll give you a little example if it's okay. Uh sure. you know, we we use this often in CFT as a teaching tool. Um and I should mention some colleagues who are doing some really good. My friend Russell Colts on the in Washington, he does some really good work with anger. Uh, and if we think about, like, let's say you go to a party, and you your friend has a craft beer. He home brews craft beer, and let's say he made it way, way, way too strong. <laughs> And which they do sometimes. Yeah, I feel and like all, I've had this uh, this experience. <laughs> okay, good. So this will speak to you. And let's say, imagine not only is it too strong, but maybe it wasn't you know pasteurized or you know properly prepared. So uh, it also is a little off. And you have a, like two beers, but as a result, you have way too much alcohol and also a whole bunch of impurities. And then you go home and you're terribly sick, and you have basically the equivalent of food poisoning and a hangover and throw up for ages, and you feel absolutely miserable. So. Then three weeks later, you're at a party and someone hands you a pint of beer and says, would you like this beer? You know, and how are you going to feel in your body? Mm. You're going to feel sick and like, oh, get that thing away from mm. me. Uh, you know, and that's classical conditioning of a sort. It's a very basic form of disgust responding. But you, you've learned to pair, to combine and associate the beer with this 
sickness and disgust response. So now, just like someone saying, Jack and Jill ran up the hill, mm -hmm. you will see the beer and go, ooh, I don't want you know, that. Um, well, imagine if someone has a caregiver who, from whom we learn how to feel warmth, stability, calm, safeness, and that caregiver is violent or rageful or cruel. Uh. Now, now we've paired the calming, soothing, safe emotions with more and more threat. So people get stuck in this dreadful loop of not being able to self-soothe, not being able to tolerate emotions. And the only way they can deal with them in those cases sometimes is to run away from them, which, of course, makes them feel worse and more of those emotions. So it's a very, very complicated, very tricky situation we can find ourselves in as humans with our emotional lives. That's that's fascinating. I was just thinking about the conditioning thing uh, over Christmas. You know, I was with my brother and he's older than me and I was making him a drink and he said, I was going to make a dark and stormy, which is just mm. rum and ginger beer. And he said, no, 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 don't make it with rum, make it with whiskey. I said, no, it's better with rum. He said, I can't drink rum anymore. Every time I see it, I think of the one, uh, cruise that I took where all they were serving was rum. And that is absolutely the, uh, the conditioning. And mm. it's pretty funny. I also, you know, one of the things uh, Tony Robbins talks about that I that I find really interesting is he said that um, uh, so many of our actions, uh, our change occurs when we tie something to either, um, you know, a, a, a good deal of happiness or a good deal of pain. So basically pleasure or pain. And he said, so, for example, there are people who try to quit smoking for 20 years and then they have a child, say, and they're able to quit in a day. Why is that? Well, they they um, prescribe enough pain to smoking around their child that they can instantly change their um, their actions. That's just one example. And that's always stuck with me because that's one of his um, his things that he preaches on about how to enact uh, change in your life. I just I, I always try to I'm always bringing these things together when I'm learning new stuff. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's wonderful. And that, I mean, firstly, bringing things together, that's what humans do. We're relating machines. We're the, the most ah. amazing relating machine. We relate things together. That's how we learn. It's how we think. And also the Tony Robbins example is really a fabulous example of how motivations, evolved motives, will organize our mind. They'll organize our whole behavior. So if, you have, if you're under the dominance of one motive and emotion, you know, like avoiding pain or, you know, or just pleasure-seeking motive, uh, then, you know, you'll just follow that. Like, oh, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. You know, okay, hey, that's what's organizing my mind. Or, or you know, social anxiety. I'm not going to go to the party. Everyone's going to hate me. That organizes my mind and behavior. But that beautiful example of nurturing, like I have a child. Now I'm a parent. That's going to organize my mind. And whole new behavioral repertoires become available. Yeah. I can't smoke this cigarette. I'm not going to smoke this in front of my child. And that is exactly what we can do when we seek radical transformation through training the mind is activate new motives that change they sort of change everything. That's fascinating. Well, Dennis, thank you so much. This has been, you know, fantastic. I love it. Um, I want to I want to give a chance because I can almost feel, you know, listeners will be like, this is great. I want to learn more. The book is The Compassionate Mind Guide to Overcoming Anxiety, Using Compassion-Focused Therapy to Calm Worry, Panic, and Fear. 
And um, you, as I mentioned, are the founder and director of the Center for Compassion Focused Therapy. You know, one of the leaders, the foremost experts on compassion focused therapy. And we will link to that at smartpeoplepodcast.com. But where else? I mean, this is your passion. What would you advise to people who, um, you know, are going, this is something I want to learn more about or anxiety is part of my life and I want to I want to figure out a new way to deal with it? Well, partially, I guess, as sort of a plug, but also because I spent a long time building this website. <laughs> uh, MindfulCompassion.com has a, quite a few resources uh, we have a you know a large number of meditations which are free for download, and there uh, also are a number of links to videos, um, people from the Compassion Focused Therapy and the ACT Therapy community. We have lots of uh, lectures that are are available for download there. Uh, eventually, we'll you know we'll put a link to this podcast and and in the links section of mindfulcompassion.com, there's links to. Compassionate Mind Foundation and Sea Care in Stanford, and also there's even a patient handout or client handout, uh, like a workbook. So if you didn't even want to, you know, go buy a book, you could get like a sketch of how compassion focused therapy works there. Uh, and I think if you go to mindfulcompassion.com and look at the meditations, the videos, the audio, and the links, that'd be a good entree to this world of compassion focused work and we put a lot of love into the book uh you know the uh overcoming anxiety mindful uh compassionate mind guide to overcoming anxiety so that's another good resource and the links through mindfulcompassion.com you could you know like let that network reticulate out by just following all the different links and mm. there'd be a lot, a lot of places to go there and I do know that people or folks that are dealing with anxiety or know someone they're always looking for more resources and resources that are validated or, you know, are, are good. So, again, that's mindfulcompassion.com. I, I can't wait to, to check that out as well. Dennis, I, again, I just want to say thank you for your time. I, I really appreciate it. Oh, hey, thanks, Chris. This was a really lovely conversation, and I'm glad that it will be getting out to people on Smart People Podcast. And Absolutely. E even if it had just been the two of us talking, <laughs> it would have been a nice way to spend the morning. So <laughs> I, I appreciate it. I appreciate that, and I agree. I really do. So thank you again. Oh, thanks so much. Really looking forward to it. All right, Dennis. Thanks again. Have a great day. You too. Happy New Year. You Bye. too. Bye-bye. That's it for this week. I hope you enjoyed the episode with Dennis Turch. Remember, if you're going to buy any of Dennis's books, please use the Amazon link over at smartpeoplepodcast.com slash Amazon. If you need to reach out to the show, you can email us at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. As Chris mentioned at the beginning of our episode, if you're interested in our mastermind group, please head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com slash mastermind to fill out a short survey and if you're one of the first to sign up, we'll send you a promo code for a discounted membership. That's it for this week. Make sure you stay tuned. Head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com to see all the new guests and old guests. We've got some exciting interviews coming up, and we'll see you all next week. <laughs>